changes in the air, changing seasons, changing climates, and changing politics in Washington. How will the incoming Obama administration deal with climate change? Today on Jet Streaming, we'll take Washington's temperature with a leading climate scientist. And are you still looking for that perfect holiday gift for the young weather geek in your life? We'll highlight some great weather books for kids of all ages. Happy holidays, Santa, his reindeer, and all the little weather elves are on the jet stream today from Minnesota Public Radio. Hi again, everybody. I'm Minnesota Public Radio Chief Meteorologist Paul Hutner. Happy to be back on the jet stream after a little medical leave. University of Minnesota meteorologist and climate guru Dr. Mark Seeley and Minnesota Public Radio and longtime National Weather Service meteorologist Craig Edwards are on board today. Hi, you guys. Nice to be with you on this cold winter day, Paul. Yeah, winter's off to a grand start here in the upper Midwest, I'd say. Yeah, and it looks like it's going to stay that way with the active pattern with systems headed this way. Well, among some of the weather headlines this week, you two, uh, include a report from the British Meteorological Office that 2008 may be the coolest year of the decade globally, but still the 10th hottest year on record. The British Met Office says the global average temperature for 2008 should come in around 14.3 degrees Celsius. That's 57.74 degrees Fahrenheit for the non-metric converted. And this would still mean that the 10 hottest years on record have all occurred since 1995. So how do you read this, Mark? We know one year is not a trend, but is this a relatively cool year in a warm decade or a warm year by historical standards or both? Well, it's certainly both, depending on the context, Paul, but I think the real marker for me about uh, 2008, particularly the Northern Hemisphere's summer of 2008, was covered in a a press release by the uh, Joint Arctic uh, uh, Ice Commission uh, earlier this year when they showed that the extent of Arctic sea ice in the Northern Hemisphere in September was the second lowest measured since 1979. It trailed uh, 2007, summer of 2007 only. So that uh, that to me says that the trends in terms of climate change impacts, especially in the polar regions, are still manifesting themselves. And again, that's, that's the model, that's the theory. We continue to see some of the greatest changes at the highest latitudes. Another headline this week, President-elect Barack Obama, Vice President-elect Joe Biden, met with Al Gore, and Obama called dealing with climate change a matter of urgency. He is talking about a bold, aggressive approach to climate change, and this would clearly be a departure from what we've seen the last eight years in Washington. Craig Edwards, you spent many years in government at the National Weather Service. What is your perspective on government's past and future approach to climate change? Well, Paul, originally NOAA was sort of the keeper of the records and the monitor of the climate and also forecasting weather and climate, but it was not into the discussions of climate change and global warming. Uh, Gradually, over the course of the last three or four years, NOAA has taken a bigger role in coming forward with comparisons of how climate trends are showing us that, indeed, the globe is warming up, and they're, they're doing a better job now of making statements and press releases on what they're notice, noticing in regard to climate change globally. Interesting to see how that will evolve in the next few years. Well, one guy who knows quite a bit about how to put climate changes in perspective is Dr. Stephen Schneider with Stanford University. He is one of the world's leading climate experts and one of the authors of the IPCC reports 
the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports. Dr. Schneider joins us today from, I presume, Palo Alto in California. Dr. Schneider, welcome to Jet Streaming. Well, thanks very much, Paul. And uh, sorry to tell you guys, but uh, the sun is shining and it's uh, in the 60s. <laughs> oh, no. <Don't> that. <laughs> that hurts. It's, it's 19 here outside the weather lab window with about four inches of snow on the ground. But uh, I'm glad you're enjoying it. Let's start with uh, your take on global temperatures for 2008. Anything worth noting there or just random variability? When you look at the temperature change from year to year, it's going to bounce around uh, several tenths of a degree on a global average. And that's larger than the expected trends from all the greenhouse gases and the other things that humans do. So you can't really learn a lot by looking year to year, which is why we look over many decades. In fact, the World Meteorological Organization, which is a group of, you know, dozens and dozens of countries. Scientists have tried to define climate as the average over 30 years. In fact, uh, if you look over 30 years, the trend is absolutely clear. It's up mm-hmm. and it's highly significant. Uh, in fact, in 1998, which is about the warmest year that we've had uh, probably in a thousand years, that was a year of a super El Nino, you know, when the Pacific uh, gets yes. uh, warmer than normal. And it hasn't been quite that high since then. And people say, oh, there's no warming trend. Not true at all, because when you look at the cluster of the last uh, decade, it's much higher than the, uh, than the clusters of those for the last 150 years. So we're bouncing around, but we're still staying up there, and the overall trend continues to rise. Well, I know, Dr. Schneider, that policy is, uh, is one of the aspects that you deal a lot with. And it's, it's something that I think a lot of us uh, meteorologists and folks who are not climate experts, I'm more of a synoptic daily forecaster and a broadcaster, that's where I run into ground that uh, is a little tenuous for me. And I'm curious your take on when President Obama becomes a reality, or President Obama next month, it uh, seems we're headed for big changes with regard to climate change policy in the country. What do you think the first things a President Obama should and will do? Well, I think the first thing that we need to do, and this may sound weak, but actually it's very important, because if you're ever going to get any kind of, uh, of public agreement on significant policy, the people have to understand the problem and agree, is elevate the debate to an intelligent level. We've had such junk out there for the last decade or two with, uh, uh, say, people from deep ecology groups claiming end of the world and everything is guaranteed to be a disaster, and people from uh, from big cars and and uh, who are against the government involvement in, uh, in policy uh, saying, oh, no, it's all uncertain and it's good for you or we don't know or it'll bankrupt the country. So having an intelligent debate would be pretty nice. And unfortunately, the Bush administration has a a, uh, a very checkered history here of actually rewriting the science of its own scientific uh, uh, members. And uh, that was a pretty serious damper on the quality of public debate. I am absolutely certain that will not happen. Once people start to hear, I think, an honest and intelligent debate about the issue in Congress and out of administration scientists, that it'll be easier for them to get the actions that they'll need, actions which will have some costs and therefore will require political consensus. Uh, Steve, I wanted to follow up. Uh, Mark Seeley, University of Minnesota. I wanted to follow up um, your statement there briefly with the uh, nature or form of the discussion that might take place within the new administration. 
I, I agree with you 100%, and, and, uh, but, I, but I think it's, it's going to be modified a little bit by the uh, uh, ec- economic situation the country finds itself in. And I see both good and bad in that because uh, there will be some deployment of technologies that in the long term will be good for the nation's economy. But um, the, the economic shadow that's cast over this country at the moment, I think, might be good for another movement that I place a lot of value on, which is conservation, which is about conservation and thinking more about what conservation can do for the footprint that we leave. Do you think that'll be an important part of the discussions? Well, I agree with you completely on that, Mark, because if you take a look at the states and you ask, what is the per capita, you know, per person, emissions of carbon dioxide or energy use, the absolute lowest is California and the highest is Wyoming, but that's not fair because per capita, when you divide by zero, you get a big number. So look (laughs) at the next one. That's the next highest, which is Texas. And the difference in California and Texas, to be quite blunt, is that California has a 35-year experience of laws requiring people to have efficient windows, efficient light bulbs, and so forth, and even have some laws now which are in court about trying to get more efficient automobiles. And Texas has been a culture of entrepreneurial rights first. So when you take a look at that, the evidence is already clear that you save energy and you reduce your carbon footprint, uh, and you actually make money doing it by having those kinds of rules. So I think efficiency and performance standards are absolutely critical. And frankly, I have been talking to some of the uh, Obama transition team people, and I've tried to tell them that, look, you know, you're picking up this notion that we need a cap-and-trade or a carbon tax in order to have a charge for pollution. I agree with that completely, and you can't solve the problem without it, but it's going to be very politically difficult to achieve in the short run. So why don't we start where people can make money uh, and do and be doing well by doing good, which is <clears throat> better building codes, performance standards on automobiles, refrigerators, air conditioners, uh, electronics, and that way the paybacks are actually better than the mortgage interest rates. So that's where you start, and then you work your way up toward the more politically difficult cap and trade issues. Uh, Dr. Schneider, this is Craig Edwards, and I uh, I'm, I very much like your passion for what you just said, but I'd like to talk a little bit about NOAA's visibility for the past decade or so. It appears NOAA is misplaced in the Department of Commerce, and with the addition of the Department of Energy, it seems like NOAA might be a better fit to merge these two types of identities together. Do you see the new administrator of NOAA, after Ad- Admiral Lautenbacher just stepped down, do you see the new administrator of NOAA having a greater role in the discussions of climate change, and who might you speculate that could be as it comes to the table uh, as Obama takes control of the White House? Well, I certainly hope that that's what happens, Craig. I think that uh, it's critical because if you go back, <clears throat> excuse me, if you go back to the uh, the early days, we were talking about these issues in the 1970s. And there were proposals to create a National Climate Program Office, which happened. And it was actually centered through NOAA. 
And back then, there was no political contention because nobody was talking about taxing uh, the auto industry or the coal industry. So it was possible to have an intelligent dialogue in the Congress about it. And NOAA had a very important role. Then after President Reagan, where the industries tried to get the administration to back off climate policy, uh, NOAA got stepped on a little bit. And uh, that that went back again in, in uh in the Clinton-Gore period, but under uh, Bush, uh, NOAA has certainly not been allowed to have a very forward role in alerting the public about these issues. I am certain that will change in the Obama administration. Not only will they not be censored or told to hold back, they'll be told to tell what they see to be the truth. And that includes the caveats and the uncertainties because they belong there. And as you know, don't scare people with all the bad stuff. You've got to tell them the whole range so you can do reasonable risk management. And I think that NOAA will once again have the kind of prominent role it actually had three decades ago when we weren't so highly politicized. Stephen, do you think that uh, with your insight talking to the Obama transition team, the science advisory role, will it be more evident? Could it be a cabinet position? Might they name a climate czar? And do you think maybe that's what Al Gore was talking to them about this week? Well, I've heard rumors that they were considering naming Al Gore as the climate czar, but that he didn't want to do that. He was having too much fun you know, running around the world. Uh, I've also heard the name Arnold Schwarzenegger as a climate czar. Uh, but I'm not plugged in directly. They call me, ask me questions, and I uh, give them my opinion. And I don't ask them for the latest. So uh, I'm unfortunately not going to be able to give you any deep insights. And I don't think that there'll be a climate czar per se, but I think there'll be a high presence uh, in White House staff for somebody looking across agencies to try to do some coordination. That only, you know, makes good sense, and clearly uh, Obama is aware of that, and I'm certain that Gore reinforced it. I understand there's a new effort through Climate Central that's going to try to place the dialogue of climate scientists in a more meaningful context with the media and that one of the centers for Climate Central is out in Palo Alto. Now, do you? At, at, it, maybe it's even there at Stanford. Do you have anything to do with that? Well, I talk to them all the time. I'm not officially uh, involved with Climate Central, but uh, in fact, ironically, when you bring this up, uh, this morning I was on a uh, conference call with them, and we were talking about ways to try to get these uh, viewpoints of the seriousness of the problem and how the scientific community doesn't want the economy to block what is necessary to preserve the life support system of the earth over 100 years. And uh, we were already working out how we can try to get that message uh, more directly to the president-elect. So uh, Climate Central, I think, will be a good facilitator of course, all we can do is offer uh, is is offer our services to them, and it's up to them to choose whether they want to hear it from us or other groups. I think the National Academy of Sciences will also be playing that role. It's now uh, forming what's called a climate summit and uh, an academy uh, committee to make certain that it's as credible as science possibly allows. There are going to be quite a lot of uh, of groups that will be funneling information to the president, and they're all excited because they think they finally have one who's going to listen and not uh, click off his ears. 
Craig, anything else from you today? No, I, I, I appreciate, like I say, the passion of the good doctor about uh, getting this on the, uh, on the uh, table and getting a academic discussion that uh, takes the emotions and the politics out of what we've been talking about in the way of climate change for the last decade or so. And uh, I as objective well. is to try to. Uh, I've always. I tell my my more wild-eyed environmental friends, "Come on, guys. The truth is bad enough. We don't need to embellish this." And I don't like it when the other side does the same thing in reverse. It just confuses everybody. Well, Dr. Schneider, your work is uh, very much appreciated by all of us here who uh, work in the weather business in the Twin Cities and. Uh, thanks for joining us on Jet Streaming today. Well, thanks for having me. It's important uh, outreach that you're uh, performing here. When you wish upon a star, makes no difference who you are. Yes, you can wish upon a star, but dreams for future weather geeks may start with books about weather. Karen Nelson Hoyle is the curator of the Children's Literature Research Collections at the University of Minnesota. And she joins us today in studio to recommend some weather-themed books for the young reader on your holiday shopping list. Welcome to Jetstreaming, Karen. I'm just tickled to be here because books are my very favorite subject, and there's lots to share about weather. You know, I'm curious. How do kids respond to books about weather? Well, I'm not sure that if they're looking at a picture book, they're thinking about uh, weather, but they just love good stories at tender age of preschool through adulthood. Now, let's talk about a few books specifically that might be uh, what folks are looking for out there this holiday season that kids enjoy. Tornadoes, I know, get all the headlines. Do they get kids' attention when it comes to weather books? Oh, I think kids know that the Wizard of Oz, the wonderful Wizard of Oz, Dorothy, is promulgated on beginning with a cyclone or a tornado. And that's a wonderful classic that people hear about and see the movie about. But one of my favorite stories is Ezra Jack Keats' The Snowy Day. And it's a story about Peter. He's an African-American boy, but it doesn't say that he's an African-American boy. It just talks about Peter walking in the snow, looking at his tracks, making a snow angel. And this book became the Caldecott Award winner of its year. Karen, I wanted to uh, mention... You know, uh, nationally, now this would be for the, the o- a little bit older children, the K-12 curriculum is being uh, reinforced with, uh, well, it's part of this nationwide climate literacy program to try to get the student population much more literate of climate and its role in our lives and how it impacts the world we see around us. But it seems like a lot of the literature that you've brought uh, to share with us today, a lot of it is targeted at the young reader, the very early reader. Is that right? That's that's so true because little children love rain and they love snow and they they pay attention to the weather. And so the authors and illustrators, knowing that this is their audience, write books about the sun, the wind, and the rain, or cold little duck, duck, duck. And, of course, we have every kind of weather there is here in Minnesota. (laughs) Aren't we lucky to be able to talk about the hot summer and the cold winter? Yeah, this is Craig Edwards. I love your observation about the young children paying attention to the weather because it seems like the older they get, the more distracted they are by other things, and they they tend to 
have what develops is called a nature deficit disorder, that there's too many other distractions. So I think if, if we can get the concept across of young children, I'm talking about three, four, five years old, that still are into the, uh, the mode of listening to the parents tell stories and having the parents sit down and read these stories to them is a bonding type of thing that's going to relate, I think, in years ahead that are going to have an education that's going to be a stewardship, and the climate stewardship that we talked about, so there is an appreciation for nature, not just something you take advantage of for a summer vacation or a winter vacation. And what child doesn't look forward to a rain especially if there are new boots or an umbrella in the house for that child to, to wear. And this is, we, we have Taro Yashima, who was a Japanese immigrant to the United States. His daughter Momo begged him for a story, and so he just observed her and found out that she just couldn't wait for that first rain so she could use her, her umbrella. And the Curlin Collection, where I work at, at the University of Minnesota, has the original Art, the dummy book that Taro Yashima made for Umbrella, with little Momo yearning for the day that she can go outside and put on her rubber boots and put up her umbrella. It's such an engaging story. Boy, those really are the original illustrations. That's fantastic that you have that. And this is what the Uh collection is known for. It's known for its manuscripts and its original art. For the, young, children's books. for the young reader, Karen, is the illustrative element of the book quite uh, quite critical, in your opinion? I think so. I, I uh-huh. think of a parent with a child on his or her lap and opening the book and looking at the double-page spread and looking at the illustrations and hearing the child. The child might re- memorize that story and tell it back to the parent, and they can look at the books that way. Karen, is there any specific or best place to find uh, children's books about weather? And can you give us three or four titles that our listeners might be able to to get a hold of for the young weather person in their life this year? Well, we're talking about rain. So something like Edith Thatcher Hurd's book, Johnny Lyon's Rubber Boots, illustrated by her husband, Clement. It's an easy reader, and this is a kind of category for children's books. So one can certainly find these books in the public library. I think it's just one goes down the shelf looking at the picture books. You'll see books about snow and rivers and hot summer, steaming summer days and tornadoes and cyclones and the aftermath of weather as well. I love the image you portray as you're telling these stories, and I think that it's it's oftentimes more easy for an adult to put a DVD in and entertain the child that way, but I really like the way you reminisce about putting a child on your lap and letting them turn the page and the, the inquisitive look they might have as they turn the page and see another picture, and, and then you relay the story to them. It's, it's just a wonderful way of sort of, for me, going back in time and visualizing and the imagination that kids can have as they read these types of books and, and read the book with an adult. You know, when, when the tsunami came through, you know, how can you explain a tsunami to a little child? But... There are children's books about the aftermath of that tsunami, and one of them is a story about a hippo, a baby hippo. Children can associate with baby animals. They love farm books. But there's a book entitled Mama for Owen. It's by Marion Dane Bauer. She's a Minnesota author. We have her manuscripts at the Curlin Collection. And it's a story about a baby hippo ending up in a zoo befriended by a giant sea turtle. 
with the shape of its own mama. And so here's a story precipitated by the tsunami, but it has a very interesting story. And it's a true story. It looks very well illustrated uh, to me. Uh, say the Curlin Collection is available to the public? Absolutely. And what hours, if people wanted, say, preceding the holidays, to preview or take a look yes. at what's in the collection and, and sort of get a visual sampling, when could they come there? The collection is open Monday through Friday from 8.30 to 4.30. We are closed Christmas Day and the day following and New Year's New Year's Day. But it's open to the public, and now we've added Saturday hours from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Most Saturdays, again, we're skipping the holiday at Christmas time, but um, this is a good time to plan ahead. Let us know what, what you'd like to look for when you come to visit, and we'll try to have those materials ready for the public. Well, Karen, it's uh, fascinating stuff. It's great to see the little kids' eyes light up when they look at these books. And by the way, Wet World, one of my favorite books that I read to my son. Karen Nelson-Hoyle, the University of Minnesota, thanks for joining us today on Jet Streaming. You're so welcome. Nothing I like to talk about better. Well, thunder in December generally means heavy snow here in the upper Midwest, <laughs> but uh, on Jet Streaming... It means the website of the week. And Craig Edwards, you dug one up for us today. What do you got? Well, Paul and Mark, think, uh, going along the theme of youngsters and getting them excited about weather, I found a great site called weatherwhizkids.com. It's by a meteorologist who works for a TV station in Indianapolis. And Mark, you'll be pleased to know she's also a graduate of Northern Illinois University. But it's got all sorts of entertaining information about the weather on the website. It's got even got some weather jokes on there and I'll just tell you one quick one. What happens when the fog lifts in California? I don't UCL, know. What happens? UCLA. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Two weather guys walk into a bar, right? Is that yeah, it? Yeah, Mar- Mark, yeah. <laughs> Mark and Craig, I'm curious here before we go. We're in a nice little active snow pattern here, early season anyway. We've been in this northwest flow, so... So far, everything coming down has primarily been clippers, although the last one was a pretty decent system. It looks like we may go into southwest flow aloft next week, and this is shaping up to be a pretty active early snow season. Mark, what do you think? Well, I think that's very significant what you alluded to, Paul, because we're, we're in a situation now where our seasonal deposition of snow is such that it's modified the landscape, and we have cold air. We have cold air present over us, and I don't see any significant thaw that's going to take away our snow cover. So I think as we get southwesterly flow, if we get enough water vapor brought up here, we're going to have some pretty appreciable snow. We might be in for quite a snowy December in my view. In fact, uh, Craig, Craig, I was just looking at the maps for this weekend. It looks like western and northern Minnesota could get clobbered. Well, I'm hoping that's where it stays because i got a trip to northern Illinois planned for Saturday and Sunday. <laughs> but, Paul, Paul, I heard you talk earlier on All Things Considered about the snow belt of southeast Minnesota and southern Wisconsin that we saw last year. And I'm wondering if maybe that snow belt area is not going to shift up toward the Twin Cities and Duluth. And I'm seeing a little bit of a trend toward milder conditions in central and northern Illinois. And perhaps a rain snow line will be in the Madison a lacrosse area, and it's more likely to be snow here in the Twin Cities and northward as we get deeper into the month of December. So we'll have to see how that all plays out. I'm sure that area would welcome rain this winter, dominant over the snow they got last winter. Remember how hammered they were last winter in that area. Yeah, 100 inches right. of snow. 
Chicago had rain this week uh, with 36 degrees and wet snow in Milwaukee uh, just a couple of days ago. And a record year for Madison and much of southern Wisconsin last year. Well, thank you, guys. Uh, excellent discussion this week. Thanks. Good Always to talk good to, to you, Paul. Great, together. great to have you back. Thanks, Mark. Don't forget, you can always drop us a line or a question or comment by way of the Jet Streaming webpage at mpr.org. That's it for Jet Streaming this week. Stay warm and watch the snow fly. For Mark Craig, producers Jim Bickle and P. Ray Rudolph and sound guru Steve Griffith, I'm Paul Hutner. Thanks for listening, and remember to keep an ear here to Jet Streaming and your weather eye on the sky. Like a out of the blue Fate steps in And sees you through